This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg. Coming up in the second half of today's show, exciting news for the North Dakota Council on the Arts. We learn about a number of upcoming projects that are possible thanks to a big budget increase. But we are going to start today with another museum you may not have heard of, the North American Game Warden Museum. It is at the International Peace Garden, and the Peace Gardens are up in the north-central part of North Dakota. The museum has been open since 2005, and Main Street's Craig Blumenshine caught up with manager Stephanie Lee. Stephanie, welcome to Main Street. Thank you for having me this morning. I'm excited. We're really happy that you are here, Stephanie. Tell us the history of the North American Game Warden Museum. Yeah, so we actually physically opened the museum in 2005 where we are located. We are on the American side uh, in the International Peace Gardens, which is kind of a really interesting location because a lot of people think it's no man's land up there where we are. Um, It's a beautiful location. It's a great place to visit. The museum, like I said, opened originally in 2005, but the concept for the museum actually got started back in the 80s, actually in 1988, when we had our executive board meetings. There is a group called NOWIA, It is a wildlife enforcement organization. They are the group of game wardens all over North America. They wanted to discuss the creation of the Game Warden Museum and where it should be located. They had meetings in Louisiana. They had meetings in Virginia. Finally, in the 90s, it was approved that it should be in the International Peace Gardens. It was centrally located in North America. Project was approved actually in 1990. The plan was for like a 15,000 square foot structure. There was a lease signed with the Peace Gardens and then plans were just put in place to start moving forward. Like I said, in 2005, the museum opened and that's where we're at today. And Stephanie, if you were to tell me the the goals of the museum, what would you say? Mm -hmm. What would you tell me? We kind of have two main goals at the museum here. One of them being is to honor all of the fallen officers we have had over the years. Um, We have a large memorial garden out back of the museum. And we really want to honor all of the officers that have given the ultimate sacrifice, which is dying in the line of duty. Our other goal is to educate the public to what game wardens do and what their job is and what it all entails and to get knowledge out there to the public that this job is a dangerous job and there's a lot of different things that go into this job that a lot of people don't realize. You know, different parts of the U.S. and Canada, they might be called different things, conservation officers, natural resource officers, game wardens. And we really want to just educate people of what's going on out there. If you were to mm-hmm. walk me through the museum, and we're going to talk more about yeah. maybe the, the, yeah. what life is like for a game warden or a natural resource mm-hmm. officer here in just a little bit. But relative to the museum, I'm coming to the International Peace Garden. I see yes. the museum. What yes. do I see? What am I looking at? The museum itself is actually kind of tucked away a bit in the International Peace Gardens, and its location in the Peace Gardens is kind of unique. Um, In the Peace Gardens, you'll actually kind of come down this road, and when people are pulling up to the museum, there's a big part of the museum that almost looks like kind of like a cathedral, kind of like a church. So people pull up, and they're really intrigued by you know, what? what is this building? And they see the outside sign. And we have a big um, display outside of all these granite paving stones and flags flying all the time. And people are just really intrigued by, you know, they see North mm-hmm. American Game Warden Museum. When I walk through the front yeah. doors now, I've, I've parked. Right. I've, my curiosity is getting yeah. the best of me. I come inside. Well, now mm-hmm. what do I see? Take me on a little tour. Um, 
you open the front doors of the museum, walk in. Obviously, um, either myself or my staff would greet you, give you a little intro to the museum. And the first thing you will see, lots of bright light. And the first thing is a big deer sitting on this table, <laughs> kind of with a full rack of velvet antlers. Um, which is gorgeous to welcome you. <laughs> we have a giant moose head on the wall with his giant antlers. And then most people will kind of turn a little bit left and get greeted by our giant Kodiak bear, which is very surprising to people. And a lot of people don't realize these are actual real animals that are out there in the wild. We have kind of our bear display, which is our Kodiak bear and our polar bear and our black bear. We have our deer, which is on display with our, you know, the velvet racks and some world record deer antlers, some wolves on display, our mountain lion. And then we have some other things that are kind of tucked away in drawers, an ivory collection that was seized in New York. We have some other little items on the walls that were items that were being brought into the United States. We have videos that are playing about game wardens and the profession. We have another area in the back that has like bald eagles and owls and golden eagles and seals and whale vertebrae and whale baleen and sea turtle shells and alligator skulls and you name it, we pretty much have it. We have a walrus tusk and we have lots of different uniforms on display and our little spiel that we give to people when they walk in is that um, most of the items that you're seeing here in the museum were all pretty much confiscated or seized for some type of illegal activity involving it. Um, most of the animals that we have have some kind of story that go along with it that have some kind of illegal something that is involved in it. So that's why we have it. We want to kind of educate people on why we have these animals, how we got them, what had happened to the people that were hunting or fishing, what had happened in that case, in that story that was illegal what that game warden did, what the person got fined with, what had happened to the person. You know, usually there's some jail time, you know, fines, things got taken away. And people, most people spend a lot of time in there and they are totally blown away by what we have. And they cannot believe what people will do and try to get away with mm. in this hunting and fishing world that they just like cannot wrap their minds around that some people just don't want to follow the rules and the laws and you know they try to get away with anything they can and your message that's is, why we course, have is then the work of the game warden to enforce right all of those laws and here therein lies maybe some of the danger of the occupation yeah and then along with once they walk into the museum and see everything in there another thing we tell them is please go out the back door and check out our fallen officer memorial. Sure. So we have Karens out there that list every single state, every single province, every name of the fallen officers in each of those states, in each of those provinces out there on those Karens, on those granite plaques out there that surround the Canadian and the American flags. It's kind of a somber place to go. Sure. And walk out there. We do have... Most of the stories that go along with the wardens and the different officers of what had happened. Sure. And so many people, you know, they come back in and they come up to the desk and they talk to us and they're like, we never realized the dangers of this job and what they can come up against and what they can face. And, you know, that's why we're there. We, you know, we want to honor these people. We want to educate people on what can happen and what what's all involved in this and it's it's crazy how people will walk away from the museum with like a completely different view of conservation officers of game wardens of the entire profession altogether 
We're enjoying our conversation with Stephanie Lee. She's the North American mm-hmm. Game Warden Museum Manager. Stephanie, what are the biggest challenges that your museum faces? It is just getting the word out there that we are there and we want people to come and see our museum. We're maybe a little smaller, maybe didn't have big enough voice to kind of get out there and put our name out there. With the help of social media and that kind of stuff, we are able to get our name out there a lot more nowadays. We see people from really all over the world that come and are traveling and people from all over the place. So during the past few years, it it was difficult, um, but we have really seen a jump already this summer with our numbers being so great already with just the different visitors coming. Last summer was great also. What are your hours, Stephanie? When are you open? Typically, we are open Mother's Day weekend um, through September 11th. So right away in the summer, you know, mid-May, usually we're kind of just open on the weekends. Peace Gardens is still planting everything. We are in North Dakota, Manitoba, right on the border. Mid-May, possibly still looking at ice on the lake here. So we are typically just open on the weekends. Mother's Day to Father's Day weekend. After that, we are open Tuesday through Sunday, 10 a.m. to 6 p.m. through September 11th. Um, The Peace Gardens does a really nice job with doing a big September 11th memorial ceremony. So I'm always open for that day. And then pretty much things wind down after that. We are closed during the winter months, but I do really try to go out of my way to accommodate different families, people that are traveling that reach out to me and they're like, hey, we want to come in. You know, we have a family member that was a game warden. We have someone that has a plaque there. We have someone that is on your memorial. Grandfather, grandmother has ties to the museum. I live 20 minutes from the museum. I can run over there and open it up and let them come in and check it out. And they are so grateful for that experience. Sure. Do you charge admission, um, so I have n- Stephanie, to the museum? No, we do not charge admission to the museum at all. So it is completely free to come in. There is an admission cost to come into the Peace Gardens. You can buy an annual pass to the Peace Gardens. I believe that is $40. Otherwise, for like a day pass, if you're just coming in, uh, they do charge $25, and that is just per vehicle. There is a cafe on the grounds. Their big cactus conservatory is reopening after about two years of renovations on it. So that's great. That's going to be super nice. They have a new kids nature play zone. So yeah, it's really great. A great time to visit. What are your future plans? What's on your mind? We have. um, When the museum was first thought about, we had always thought about putting an addition onto the museum itself and expanding it. Um, There is much more stuff than I can display in the museum. There is stuff I can get from different departments all over Canada, all over the U.S. The idea is still there to eventually add an addition on and just have more space and more room. We are working with the Winnipeg Foundation. That's where people can go and donate to the museum itself. Uh, The Manitoba government gave us a very generous grant recently. That's kind of put in place for us to grow, to use, to just keep building operations going in the future. You know, building maintenance is always something that we have to think about in the future. And outside of the museum itself, we have paving stones that people purchase um, in memory of people. So, you know, just doing some landscaping projects with those stones um, to get more of them out because people are always ordering them. 
And that's a great way to display, you know, people's retirements and things like that. We're getting more and more all the time. So we have to get those out because people come and want to see them. So yeah, we are always talking to people about coming out and visiting people, meaning game wardens from all over the place. We do kind of like a visiting warden program where wardens and departments from all over the place can come out and visit for a day, for a weekend. They can wear their uniform. They can set up a little display table. They can, you know, put on a little PowerPoint if they want. They can kind of just walk around and talk to people in uniform. Um, They can kind of just hang out and talk to people. And people are super interested in what they have to say. And people have lots of questions. What have you learned about what it means to be a game warden, a day in the life of someone who serves as a game warden, Stephanie? Uh, It's not easy, that's for sure. (laughs) It's really interesting to me how that job title changes to where you live. We have a board of directors at the museum that is made up of game wardens from Canada and from the U.S. So just in that small group of them, There's about 12, and like I said, they're from all over the place, and just their job duties from all over. I mean, we have people that are more on the ocean. We have people that are in super rural areas. We have people that are in more populated areas, and just their job duties and, like, the things they have to do and deal with and patrolling Boats on, like, in a harbor in an ocean compared to on a smaller lake. Hunting regulations, someone that is in, you know, that does more boat regulations might not do that much, you know, checking on hunting permits. And it's just, it's crazy how things change just compared to where you live. And knowing some of the stories also of some of the officers we have out on our memorial, the fact that we are continuously adding names to that memorial and knowing some of those stories is just kind of mind-blowing at how you almost take it for granted that, oh, you know, oh, they're just out there checking licenses or... Yeah, it just put a different perspective for myself personally on the job duties and the job itself. How did you come in to have a relationship with the museum? Um, I'm not originally even from North Dakota. Um, I'm originally from Chicago. Um, So that was a big change in itself moving out here. Um, I came out here to do outdoor education for the state parks. And through that, I got to know the local game warden. Um, My husband is a park ranger, um, so I do have, you know, some ties with all of that. So I got to know the local game warden just kind of through that. At some point, they were looking for a new manager, and he had mentioned it to me a couple times, and I just, I don't know, I kind of didn't think about it too much, and then he mentioned it a couple more times, and thought about it some more, and it just kind of all worked out, and... I've been at the museum now for about um, four and a half, five years, and I'm just, I'm really happy I agreed to apply and to accept the position. It's just been an eye-opener, and the people I've met over the years, not only different game wardens and different law enforcement officers all over the place, but just the people traveling in and out of the museum and in and out of the Peace Gardens, it's been It's been so rewarding and so beneficial. Stephanie Lee, she is the North American Game Warden Museum Manager. The museum is located on the international border between Canada and the United States here in northern North Dakota. Stephanie, it's been a pleasure having you on Main Street. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's been great talking to you. And she was visiting with Main Street's Craig Blumenschein. More Main Street after this. Support for Prairie Public is provided by Starian Bank, determined to provide smart banking solutions with innovative checking accounts and personal banking tools that match your lifestyle. Starian, taking you farther. Learn more at StarianBank.com. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg. And if I said, quick, what's the state flower? You could probably come up with the answer. But maybe only half the answer? 
Here's biologist Chuck Lura for Natural North Dakota. Back in 1907, the state of North Dakota designated the, and I quote here, wild prairie rose, end quote, as the North Dakota state flower. I'd always assumed the state flower was what is commonly known as the prairie rose, or perhaps the wild rose, Rosa arkansana. I was surprised to learn recently that the state flower also includes what's commonly known as smooth rose, Rosa blanda. So the state flower honors two rose species. The prairie rose grows across the state on prairies and grasslands, as well as the margins of woodlands, roadsides, and similar habitats. It's the most abundant and widespread rose in the state. It grows to maybe a foot tall, no more than perhaps a foot and a half. The stems are not very spiny, but are covered with dense prickles. And the stems often die back during the winter, so the plants are often observed sprouting from a dead stem. The leaves are composed of 9 to 11 leaflets, which is helpful in identification. Smooth rose, on the other hand, is taller, growing 3 to 6 feet tall, and has stout stems that are mostly smooth, with perhaps a few prickles at the base and on the young branches. It has leaves composed of 5 to 7 leaflets. The number of leaflets, plant height, and lack of prickles are most helpful in differentiating the smooth rose from prairie rose. It might surprise many of you, but North Dakota is home to four species of rose, and the casual observer may have a difficult time differentiating some of them. The other two species are the prickly rose, Rosa acicularis, and the woods rose, Rosa woodsii. Both species are taller, growing from about three to six feet tall, and are associated with woodlands. The prickly rose has been documented in a handful of counties, in and around the Turtle Mountain, Pemina Hills, Devil's Lake, and the Cheyenne River Delta, and Stark County. It may be considered infrequent and associated with woody hillsides and ravines, thickets, and the like. Woods rose, however, is common and widespread in the state. It's tall and has two recurved prickles just below where the leaves are attached. So take a little extra time to observe the roses this summer. And, of course, be sure to smell the roses as well. I'm Chuck Lara. Natural North Dakota is supported in part by the NDSU Central Grasslands Research Extension Center. You can get Natural North Dakota essays delivered to your inbox every week. Sign up for the email newsletter at prairiepublic.org. Hi, I'm Jack Russell Weinstein, host of Why? Philosophical discussions about everyday life. The question why is very empowering. It's about the divine. It's about the moral. It's about the pleasurable. It's about fear. Why is everything? I'm not very good with authority and I'm not very good with limits. And so I like a question that gives me the ability to do whatever I want, whenever I want. I was born and raised in Manhattan on the edge of a neighborhood that most people would know as Spanish Harlem. I ended up in North Dakota because they offered me a job. It's that simple. And we've had a very good life here so far. Dispel these myths. Philosophy is boring. I guess I would ask you to ask yourself, are you boring? Do you think you have nothing of interest to offer anybody? You are philosophy. Philosophy is you. Everything you ask, everything you think, everything you want, everything you strive for, this is what makes up philosophy. Philosophy itself is compelling enough and exciting enough that it is pretty much the oldest discipline. And philosophers had more influence on the world than almost anybody. Plato, Aristotle, we live in their world. And so if you want to make philosophy exciting, Exciting, you have to be exciting. Philosophy majors can't get jobs or make any money. Philosophy is the highest paid major of all of the humanities, and the rate of return is actually the same over a lifetime as engineering. Listen to Why Philosophical Discussions About Everyday Life every second Sunday at 5 p.m. Central, 4 Mountain, on Prairie Public. Still to come on Main Street, we learn about the International Year of the Millets. And we get an update from the Council on the Arts. But first, this news. From the Prairie Public Newsroom, I'm Todd McDonald. The city of Portal, near the Canadian border in Burke County, will soon have a new natural gas provider. Right now, Sask Energy, a Canadian company, is providing the gas service to Portal, and the city owns the distribution system. Sask Energy informed the city that they would um, require additional insurance in order to renew that agreement, and the city determined that the cost of this additional insurance was, was not affordable. Public Service Commissioner Julie Fedorchek says that's when the mayor of Portal approached MDU. 
and she says they've reached an agreement. To construct a new system. Fedorchek says the city approved a franchise agreement for NBU, and the utility will own the distribution system. She says the city is also receiving a community development block grant from the state of North Dakota to help cover some of those costs. The proposed rates ultimately will represent an estimated reduction in natural gas costs for all the customers as compared to the previous city's rates. The proposed in-service is late 2023, but it could be moved back because of the approval process for the block grant. Fedorchek gives the mayor credit for solving the problem and working with MDU so the gas rates are lower. Minnesota is in wait-and-see mode again when it comes to legalizing online sports betting. But one lawmaker is hoping for more public discussion about any potential harms before anticipated votes next year. Mike Moen has this story. The recent legislative session saw a renewed push to adopt a sports betting plan, but it ultimately faded behind other priorities. Lawmakers from both parties say as other states implement their own laws, Minnesota needs to keep pace to avoid losing revenue or seeing consumers seek out the illegal market. DFL Senator John Marty contends there's been too much debate in Minnesota over which entities would benefit as opposed to protecting those who might fall into problem gambling. If we're going to legalize a system where powerful international corporations can profit by encouraging people to conduct very risky behavior. What I want to do is make sure this issue is fully vetted. He says it might be premature to call for a hearing later this year before a likely debate next session, but adds he would like to see more public dialogue. I'm Mike Moen. And from the Prairie Public Newsroom, i Todd McDonald. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg. 2023 is the International Year of Millets. At least the United Nations has declared it so. Millets are a type of a small grain, mostly grown in parts of Asia and Africa. And part of the UN's interest is that millets are nutritious, good for diversifying global foods, and drought-resistant. That last quality could make them useful to U.S. farmers, especially as some parts of the country face deepening drought. Here's Harvest Public Media's Eva Tesfai. In central Missouri, Linus Rothermick grows the typical corn and soybeans that can be seen in fields across the Midwest. But he also grows something called Japanese millet. Earlier this spring, before planting, Rothermick pulled out a bag of seeds and poured them on his kitchen table for me to see. Oh, they're tiny. Yeah, actually this is seed to be planted with. Okay. So, so I took it out of a bag that was going to be for, for seed to plant it with this morning. Rothermick started planting Japanese millet in 1993. Golly, I have to think how far back that is. But uh, I was a young man and I was looking for alternatives, crops to grow, to make more money, and we just weren't making a lot of money in agriculture then. There are a lot of different millets. There's the Japanese millet, Rothermick grows, pearl millet, proso millet, foxtail. You could even consider sorghum a millet. And Rothermick likes that the input costs are low. He spends a lot more money on his corn and soybean crops. Millets also tend to need less fertilizer. They're more resistant to insects and diseases, although sometimes birds like to eat it. And many millets are known to be incredibly drought resistant. Matt Little, a farmer just outside of Arnett, Oklahoma, started growing proso millet last year. He was shocked by how well it did through the extreme heat and the drought. I'm real impressed with it. I've never seen a crop that stood the heat and stood the drought and still made me money, okay? The UN's Food and Agriculture Organization wants to see the millets market grow, in part because of their climate resiliency, but also because they're nutritious and could help diversify the global food system. But millets haven't gotten the same policy, investment, and research attention that corn, wheat, and rice have received, says Makiko Taguchi, an agricultural officer with the organization. Millets being a, a neglected crop, if I may put it that way, there's a lot of opportunities for millets to contribute to the sustainable development goals. Which is why the UN named 2023 the year of millets, to bring the grains more attention. Taguchi points to the success of a similar campaign for quinoa. 
millets are getting attention at the University of Missouri's Center for Regenerative Agriculture, which is providing information to farmers on the grains. But Director Rob Meyer says more research is needed to really advance the crop. If you spend an extra million dollars on corn research, you don't necessarily advance the state of corn science very much. But if you spent a million dollars on millet research, you might suddenly (laughs) create a whole lot of new information that we didn't have before. And millets are versatile. Meyer says that there are some that would do well in drier states like Nebraska, Kansas, Oklahoma, and Texas. Other millets would be better in places that are prone to flooding, like the Missouri and Mississippi river bottoms. But millets don't have much of a market in the U.S. yet, except for birdseed. It's not as well known as other crops. Ram Paramal, the head of Kansas State University's millet breeding program, says it doesn't get the same level of federal protection as, say, corn and soybeans. Those are all cash crops. They have uh, insurance there, price is there, market is there, commodity grant support is there. He's hoping that the U.N. Year of Millets will help garner more support for the crop. In Ames, Iowa, farmer Jeff Taylor says he started growing ProSo millet about six years ago with the help of a privately funded startup that's researching and breeding the grain. He says that the government can help farmers try new crops like millets by providing federal programs that lower the risk for them. It would be wonderful if crops like ProSo millet were, were researched more and there were some incentives for farmers to to consider planting alternative crops outside of just corn and soybeans. He says a lot of the farmers he knows would like to try something other than rows and rows of the usual crops and grow something new. For Harvest Public Media, I'm Eva Tesfai. Harvest Public Media is a reporting collaboration of public media newsrooms in the Midwest and Great Plains. An update from the North Dakota Council on the Arts is next. This week on Listening to America, my conversation with our Enlightenment correspondent David McCandry about the discovery of Ernest Shackleton's ship, the Endurance, at the bottom of the Weddell Sea in Antarctica. The Endurance sank in November 1915 after being trapped and crushed by the polar ice. The story of how Shackleton and his crew of 27 all lived to tell the tale is one of the greatest survival stories in recorded history. A rescue archaeologist named Menson Bound led two multi-million dollar expeditions to find the sunken ship, which had settled on the bottom of the icy sea nearly 10,000 feet below the surface. On March 5, 2022, an underwater probe found the Endurance right where it should be, and to their great surprise, it was wonderfully intact. It's a thrilling story. Join us for all that and more on this week's Listening to America. Sunday at 11 Central, 10 Mountain, right here on Prairie Public. This is Main Street on Prairie Public. I'm Ashley Thornburg, and joining me now in our Bismarck studio is Kim Conico. She is the Executive Director of the North Dakota Council on the Arts. Kim, thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. It's been a while since I've been on the air. Yeah, and boy, do you have a lot of updates about what's going on for the council. And we'll start with largest budget ever. Does it sound like my voice is in bold? (laughs) You should see my face, which my eyes get very big when I say largest budget ever. Uh, We are thrilled that we have um, a budget of about $4.5 million for the biennium, and that is a huge increase for NDCA. We had a big, big influx of monies from in federal dollars mm-hmm. as well as an increase in legislative money. So the biennium uh, funding will allow for a new staff position in program administration and offering assistance with grants and online and making things much more accessible for our constituents. It will also be able to um, get our operating back up to a more normal level uh, that accommodates inflation, uh, mm-hmm. including funds for marketing, which for us is a real first. What do you mean by operating back up to normal? Are you talking pre-COVID? Uh, I would say um, since 2012, where oh. our operating line started to go down and continued to go down because when you are asked to present your budget for the biennium, and up until this year, you had we were being asked to make cuts to make a minimum. Okay. And this year, we were not asked for cuts. So we just went for it and we did well. <laughs> okay. 
No. So uh, we also that will also give us more money in our arts and education programs as well as our master apprenticeship training program. And we'll be starting two small new programs, which we're pretty excited about. Have to work out the details. But <laughs> well, what details do you have? Uh, that one you can will, share? Okay, so one will be for accessibility, specifically for arts organizations who may want to uh, work with sound enhancement or signage or interpretive services. Mm -hmm. And so there will be small grants available where they can uh, increase their capacity to reach their constituents. And another grant will be geared toward uh, Native and or BIPOC and or New Americans, uh, probably grants on a rolling deadline and geared specifically toward what we hear from those communities, our needs. And what are those needs that you do hear from those communities? Well, we don't yet. That's probably, oh, gotcha. one, that's probably one of the issues. I think that we've done very well in communicating what we have, but sometimes not always to the right people. And mm. new immigrants may not be aware of North Dakota Council on the Arts uh, other than through our folklorists programs. And with Native and Indigenous people, honestly, I think our reach is not far. So mm -hmm. it's about building those trusting relationships where we can talk about what do you need to accomplish art in your community and how can we help? Okay. So just to start that process, are you, you bringing on more Indigenous people and, and like getting – them to spread the message, or how do you even increase awareness about this? Well, one of the things we did was we started um, an advisory group called REACH, which stands for uh, REACH. Our arts belong here, and our REACH begins with you. So responsivity, equity, accessibility, community, and humanity. And there's eight members who are from across the state and who represent very different and diverse populations. So we're starting with them and okay. talking about how can we spread the word, what groups should we be talking to, are they involved in any festivals or community events where they can help spread the word about NDCA. We're developing a small new grants program brochure, which is gotcha. much more accessible than just saying, hey, <laughs> go online and find us. <laughs> right. But you will have that new program yes. admin who can <laughs> help with some of that. Exactly. Okay. So basically, that's kind of streamlining uh, the website and things, I would guess? Definitely. Okay. Uh, we, you know, we've done um, several things on the website already, and they're working with us now to look at the website and review language. And, you know, we heard, well, there's not enough representation in the images that we use. So we're switching up images and trying to be more inclusive and uh, mm. slowly making headway. You mentioned this $4.5 million budget, the largest ever for the biennium. How does that compare with the, the most recent past? Well, in reality, our budget's almost doubled. A few other new things going on with the Council on the Arts. There is a new person in charge of the arts in education, Matthew Anderson, going to be directing this. Uh, first of all, give us a little refresher on what this program is and then introduce us to Matthew. So arts in education covers a variety of things. We have the arts in education collaborative grants, which are schools, communities, artists working together. Uh, we also have the artist in residence program, which uh, brings artists into the schools to work with teachers and classes on arts in uh, being offered in the schools. And it may be at schools that perhaps don't have an art teacher mm. or just want to bring in additional arts training. And then the arts and education director also does a lot of letters of agreement with some of the regional organizations uh, that are offering arts in school programming. And so we help expand our capacity through them. And then lastly, they also handle the annual Poetry Out Loud. 
So Matthew Anderson yeah. comes to us from the North Dakota Museum of Art, and uh, he was recently hired, and we're very happy to have him on board. Uh, he will be based out of his uh, farm near Grand Forks area, so another person not quite in the Bismarck office with us. But uh, the moment he started, we did send him off to Washington, D.C. for Poetry Out Loud. And <laughs> we're pretty happy that he's on board. Well, speaking of poetry, we have a, a poet laureate in the state here, uh, a new one since uh, the death of Larry Wywody, Dr. Denise Elajmadir, and there is going to be a reception for her, um, and she is um, from the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa. She is a longtime educator, author, poet. Uh, tell us about the details of the Event. So this will be at uh, Turtle Mountain Community College on July 27th. We are um, working with Turtle Mountain Community College and NDSU Press, and we're going to also be taking buses, a bus from Fargo and a bus from Bismarck so that we can mm. have really good um, attendance. Uh, it's a late morning to early afternoon event, which will include um, an an honor uh, drum and song presentation to Denise. Uh, she'll be able to do some a little bit of reading and sign books, and Turtle Mountain is preparing a lunch. Um, so it's going to be a wonderful day to celebrate her. <laughs> Uh, she's she's quite wonderful, and we're happy to have her as our first poet laureate with a set term. So she'll be in her position for two years, and then we will um, have a committee that will come together to make a selection for the next poet laureate. Okay, and uh, that reception event coming up on July twenty seventh. Let's go a little deeper into that set terms. What uh, sort of doors does that open? Why limit that to just two years? Uh, there are very few states in the country that have uh, poet laureates that are named in perpetuity, and Larry was was one of those. And when he passed for us, it became an opportunity so that um, while he was in his position as poet laureate, he named 12 associate poet laureates. And we would like to make sure that those poet laureates, associate poet laureates, have an opportunity. We'd like to see um, poetry spread its wings a little further in and throughout North Dakota at a variety of events. Uh, the terms we just felt worked along with the biennium and the um, process will include a senator, a legislator, uh, NDCA, um, and uh, someone from the governor's staff as well as probably someone from the university system to help make those choices. We're visiting today with Kim Conoco, the Executive Director of the North Dakota Council on the Arts, about some upcoming activities. And there is a new exhibit called On the Edge of the Wind, Native Storytellers and the Land. This is coming up at the Heritage Center and State Museum and features. Uh, this is the work that Troy DeGeist, the state folk folklorist, put so much effort into bringing more visibility to our region's Native Storytellers. Tell us about this exhibit. Well, it's absolutely breathtaking, and it is worth a visit to the Heritage Center. Um, the room, when you walk in the gallery, you can smell sweet grass, mm. and you can hear just the actual silence, and there's so much beautiful imagery and then music and stories that are incorporated. Troy's been working on this for over 10 years, and it was wonderful that we were able to partner with um, the Heritage Center and State Museum to see this really come to fruition. The show will be up into the fall of 24, and the only thing I would say is, is to when you go to make sure you leave enough time because mm. it's very thoughtful, it's very um, emotional, and it's uh, worth spending a little bit more than a pass-through in this exhibit.
Hmm. Kim, I bet you're pretty excited to tell us about Arts on the Prairie. <laughs> arts across the prairie, I should say. That's one of my favorite topics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's going gangbusters. Yeah. Um, we have installations underway in regions one and four, which means that we've um, worked with a selection of artists and um, – uh, in Region 4 in particular, we know that we're going to be located on a private farm off a state highway, mm. which is near the Dolan Esker, just near the edge of Walsh and Nelson counties. Um, he is coming in, the artist is coming in from California for a site visit to finalize his design. Uh, the stakeholders are excited. We'll have a community meeting. Um, and we've also just received some funding to um, really work with two installations in two regions. So that's that's been very, very exciting. Um, and uh, Region 3 is starting its stakeholder meetings. We're trying to form a stakeholder group. And then uh, Regions 2, 6, and 8 are close behind in selecting a site. So it's it's been um, – since COVID, since last summer, mm -hmm. I guess I would say, there's just been a flurry of activity um, in terms of people getting together and choosing sites and going out and uh, putting together a request for proposals to mm -hmm. artists. And it also seems like it's drawing quite a lot of attention. <laughs> so we're happy. Oh, wonderful. I'm glad to hear that. Uh, which comes first in this process, the site or the artist, when you're picking what's going to go? Uh, it's a little of both. In Region hmm. 1, we have an artist and are concentrating on finalizing a site. In Region 4, we had the site and then selected the artist. Uh, so it, it varies. Um, the process that we're working with the stakeholders on is a long one. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, we kind of go with what needs to happen next based on, on where they are. Hmm. Um, the nice thing, though, is, is that the funder who is um, coming on board is also going to fund eight trainings for North Dakota artists. So one training in each of the eight regions where 10 to 12 North Dakota artists will be brought on site to learn with the selected artist uh, how to do large-scale outdoor installations, wow. which then includes – that includes things like engineering and weather and land and surveying and just probably more than – many of our <laughs> artists have been able to participate in. Yeah, it's so much to to figure out how to make something that enormous. Big. Yeah. Yes. Well, Kim, it sounds like you have a lot of irons in the fire and you will mm. have a very busy biennium. <laughs> I yes, guess, we will. You. Kim Conico, Executive Director of the North Dakota Council on the Arts. Thanks so much for your time today. I appreciate your having me on the show. Thank you. We'll have more Main Street after this. When you hear arts programming here on Prairie Public, know that it is supported in part by the North Dakota Council on the Arts, and we thank them. This is Dakota Datebook for June 29th. Shopping on the frontier was a far different experience than shopping in the cities out east, which could support shops that could specialize in items like shoes, baked goods, cloth, cheese, tea, books, and hats. The bigger cities might also have so-called cheap shops, an early version of the discount store. Small frontier towns, however, could not support such a wide variety of shops, making the general store a staple of frontier towns. The general store offered a wide variety of goods in one place. Early pioneers in Dakota Territory were dependent on traders for the goods they needed, giving rise to trading posts with goods like blankets, guns, cooking pots, and tools. The first permanent trading post was established at Pembina in 1801. Other posts were built throughout the territory as more settlers began to arrive. Small frontier towns grew into small frontier cities. As they did, they attracted more inhabitants and more businesses. The general store would slowly be replaced by specialty shops. In 1874, Bismarck boasted a population of 1,200 people. 
The city was located in a strategic position with a port on the Missouri River and later as an important railroad hub. Meyer Eppinger was a businessman from Sioux City, Iowa, but was attracted to Bismarck by the seemingly unlimited opportunities. He opened the Star Clothing House, which offered a variety of ready-made clothing for the entire family. On this date in 1887, Eppinger was in the East on one of his buying trips. His store had a reputation for carrying one of the largest stock of clothing in the Northwest. Clothing no longer had to be hand-sewn, one item at a time. People now had the convenience of manufactured clothes. Eppinger closed his store when the building was destroyed by fire in 1898. He worked to rebuild the business district, with one section becoming known as the Eppinger Block. He passed away in 1902. He was described as a kind and charitable man. He left his mark on the city and helped change the way people got their clothes on the frontier. Today's Dakota Datebook was written by Carol Butcher. I'm Merrill Pepcorn. Dakota Datebook is produced in cooperation with the State Historical Society of North Dakota with funding from Humanities North Dakota. This is Bird Note. Some swifts and frigate birds stay aloft for months at a time. Scientists know this because they attached sensors to the birds. What they hadn't been able to learn for certain was whether birds might be sleeping on the wing, and if they do, for how long. It was thought that one half of a bird's brain might sleep at a time, as happens with some birds when resting on the ground. A 2016 study provided some solid answers. Tiny devices attached to the heads of frigate birds tracked electroencephalograph patterns and, crucially, head movements. The results were fascinating. Frigate birds did sleep while aloft, most often one half of the brain at a time, as suspected, but... They also fell into normal, whole-brain sleep and sometimes even deeper REM sleep. But this deepest sleep came in bursts of just a few seconds, during which time the bird's head dipped, but its flight pattern stayed steady. An in-flight power nap. So frigate birds do sleep on the wing, just not very much. On average, 42 minutes per day. When perched on land, they sleep 12 hours a day. What still has scientists puzzled is how they can get by with so little sleep when flying for months at a time. For Bird Note, I'm Mary McCann. Next time on The Polls, secret missions conducted under the cover of night. George Earl IV, 64, said the canisters were dumped from a B-17 bomber flying low over the ocean. To get rid of radioactive waste. Take these canisters out and dump them off of Atlantic City. The toxic legacy of nuclear experiments. That's tonight at 8 central, here on Prairie Public. That's it for this Thursday edition of Main Street. Coming up tomorrow on the show, we have our weekly news discussion with Dave Thompson and a movie review from Matt O'Lean. That's coming up tomorrow on Main Street. Until then, enjoy the rest of your day.